So let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into Matthew chapter 23. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll open your Bibles, if you will, today to Matthew chapter 23. Um, I know that Zoom Bible studies are a challenge. Um, there's a delay, a slight delay. Uh, I can see many of you on the large screen that is in front of me. And uh, I'll say something, ask you to show me a, your thumbs up if you can hear me. And when I do, um, it's about five seconds before you actually do it. So um, bear in mind, if I'm going too fast, um, just send a private message to Rachel and um, she can give me the signal to go ahead and slow down. So Matthew chapter 23, we're going to go ahead and read through um, the entire chapter today um, because it's part of a whole, then we'll come back and look at it in closer detail. So it's a longer section than we would normally read, um, but again, all of these words that Jesus has to the Jewish religious leaders um, need to be taken in one sitting. So then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their goods to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves." Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that was made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out at a gnat and swallowing a camel. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which are outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So that on may you come, all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See your houses left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, it's pretty severe language coming from Jesus, isn't it? Um, he probably would not have been a chapter in Dale Carnegie's book on how to uh, impress people and make friends. Uh, this is not necessarily the way you do it, by calling people whited sepulchers, polished and impressive on the outside, but on the inside filled with dead men's bones and every kind of evil. So often when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus as gentle, meek, and mild. But what we find here in Matthew chapter 23 is a picture of Jesus that is very different than the one that we are comfortable with. Um, in C.S. Lewis's children's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, one of the children asked the question about the main character, the lion, the lion Aslan. They asked the question, is he safe? And the answer that he receives is, no, he is not safe. He is very good, but he is not safe. Well, what we have here in Matthew chapter 23 is a picture of Jesus, the Lion of Judah. He is very good, but he is by no means safe. And he is perfectly willing, and he feels it necessary to call out the scribes and the Pharisees on this particular occasion. Now, as we have already seen, Jesus had by this point amassed a number of enemies uh, as a result of his ministry, his teaching, and his preaching. Uh, the Herodians, of course, were opposed to Jesus. The Herodians were a political party. They were the supporters of King Herod and Jesus on more than one occasion, and not just Jesus, but John the Baptist as well, had run afoul of King Herod. And so you have the Herodians. Uh, they are against Jesus. They're somewhat indifferent to Jesus, more than open hostility. Uh, but they are still there. They are still a factor, as we saw last week. Uh, they were willing to um, ally themselves with others in their opposition to Jesus. The Sadducees, of course, were opposed to Jesus. They were the liberals of their day. Uh, 
Uh, they didn't take seriously the scriptures, only the first few books of the Bible, as a matter of fact, but they nevertheless were opposed to Jesus as well. I think it's probably safe to say that when it comes to the Herodians and the Sadducees, as well as the Pharisees, who we're going to come to next, the Herodians and the Sadducees were for the most part jealous of Jesus. Uh, we've noticed in the scriptures before that when Jesus spoke, he spoke as one having authority. Jesus hadn't been to any of the rabbinical academies. He had never been formally licensed to preach. And yet when he spoke, the people listened because he had an authority, an innate authority. And the Herodians and the Sadducees disliked him for that reason. But of course, those who dislike Jesus the most and the ones who are always out there plotting to somehow discredit him, and by this point, their plotting has turned from simply an attempt to discredit him to actually destroy him, Jesus' primary enemies are the Pharisees and the scribes. And it's the Pharisees and the scribes in particular that Jesus addresses here in this 23rd chapter of Matthew, in this series of woes, this series of condemnations. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question, what was the problem for the Pharisees? Uh, why was it that Jesus was so severe in his rebuke? The Herodians were uh, not necessarily friendly toward the gospel message. The Sadducees were not necessarily friendly toward the gospel message. But you don't hear Jesus saying anything toward them as he does here toward the Pharisees in chapter 23. So what was the problem with the Pharisees in particular? Well, it's a constant refrain through these verses. We meet it, first of all, in verse 13. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. As far as Jesus was concerned, this was the primary problem with the Pharisees. The Herodians had their problems. Uh, they, of course, were willing to ally themselves with Herod, who was an immoral and evil individual. The Sadducees, of course, because they didn't take seriously the scriptures, and Jesus, of course, did, saying not one jot nor one tittle will in any way pass from the law. So they were problematic as well. But the real problem and the thing that Jesus was most upset about the Pharisees was their hypocrisy. Now, the Greek word here is a very interesting word, hypocrites, from which we get hypocrite. It is a word that actually comes from the Greek theater, and it literally means, literally translated into English, to wear a mask. In the Greek theater, when an actor would step onto the stage, if it happened to be a comic scene, he would wear a mask, a comic mask. But if the scene was a tragedy, he would come out on the stage. Oftentimes, there are only one or two actors on the stage, and he would wear a tragic mask. But the mask, you see, was hiding the real face. And that was Jesus' complaint against the Pharisees more than anything else. There were many problems that they had, and Jesus is going to go through here and elucidate them one by one. But the primary problem was their hypocrisy, the fact that they were wearing a mask. And if you think about it, that's the way it is with many people today, isn't it? Most of us, if we're perfectly honest, would have to admit that we wear a mask for the greater part of our lives. We have our private thoughts, our private dreams, our, our private prejudices, whatever they may be. But when we're out in public, what do we do? We put on that mask. Things may look very impressive to the rest of the world, but back home, things may be falling apart. But when we get outside the door, we immediately put on that mask. And that's what Jesus was accusing the Pharisees of doing, of wearing a mask. The one thing the Apostle Paul tells us we are not to do is to wear a mask. He says we are to be anupokritos, without a mask. 
And if you think about it, it makes sense. What's that opening colic, the colic for purity that we pray every Sunday? Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and what? And from whom no secrets are hid. We can hide our true identity from those around us, but we cannot hide our true identity from God. God will unmask us. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here in Matthew chapter 23 to the Pharisees. He is unmasking them. Now, when they wore a mask, what did they look like? Well, they looked, as Jesus says, polished and impressive. It reminds me of a quote by Matthew Henry, the famous a biblical commentator back in the 18th century. He was talking about hypocritical preachers. He said, there are just some preachers that are just so eloquent. He said, when they are in the pulpit, they preach so well that it is a pity that they should ever come out. He said, but when they are out of the pulpit, they live so ill that it is a pity that they should ever go in. Unfortunately, um, we've seen this uh, in American, particularly in televangelism, uh, over the course of the past 20 or 30 years, we've seen those who look so good on screen, but privately in their own lives, they're doing all kinds of irreputable things. Well, that's what Jesus was concerned about. And it's something that we should be concerned about as well. But not just when it comes to preachers, but when it comes to our own lives. Now, what's interesting is that when the Pharisees put on their mask, it wasn't just a mask that was intended to fool other people. The Pharisees had been wearing their masks for so long that they had actually started to fool themselves. You know, if you tell a lie long enough and frequently enough and sincerely enough, even though it's a lie, you may come to believe it. And that was the case with the Pharisees. They wore a mask of respectability, but they had worn it for so long, and people had been fooled for so long that they actually began to think that they were respectable. The very word Pharisee says it all. The word means separated ones. That's what the word Pharisee means. So when you come across that title in the New Testament, you know what it means, separated. That's what they felt they were called to do, to be different, to stand out. After all, that was God's calling on Israel to come out from among them and be separate. And the Pharisees felt that that is exactly, if the nation as a whole wasn't going to do it, they at least as the religious leaders, the experts in the law, were going to do it. If you want to know how the Pharisees perceived themselves, Jesus gives us a beautiful picture of it in Luke chapter 18. So keep your finger there in Matthew for just a moment and turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. Now, this is one of Jesus' many parables, and it's really a parable about justification. It's really a parable about righteousness, but it is an apt description of how the Pharisees perceived themselves. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9, and Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. Now the key here is, this is a parable about those who trusted in themselves, who trusted that they were righteous. The word righteous in the New Testament doesn't simply mean upstanding. It means to be in a right relationship with God. 
all right? So he told a parable about those who thought they were in a right relationship with God and as a consequence treated others who they did not regard to be in a right relationship with God with contempt. And he said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other to the tax collector. Now, the tax collectors, of course, were some of the most despised people in first century Jewish society. And one of the reasons for that was because tax collectors were often Jews, but they worked for the Roman Empire. So they were regarded as traitors to the cause. Uh, they were collaborators with the enemy. Uh, what's more, tax collectors were notoriously dishonest. At least that was their reputation. Uh, they were responsible for collecting the tax for the empire, but they would frequently fleece the people. They would take more money than was necessary and they would pocket the rest. And so they were among the most despised people in society. So Jesus is drawing a stark contrast here between this Pharisee, who is the separated one, who apparently is serious about the law, who is upstanding. And you need to understand that in the first century, the Pharisees really were regarded by the people as upstanding people. Now, we know they have a bad reputation today, because as Christians, we know that they were the Lord's arch enemies. But in their own day, they were highly respected. They wore this mask, I said, as a, of respectability. If you were standing uh, in the marketplace, as a man in the first century, and you had your boy, your son at your side, and you saw the Pharisees going through on their way to the temple to pray, you would have patted your son on the back and you would have pointed the Pharisees out as, as great men. You would have said to your son, son, if you work hard, if you're faithful to God, if you keep the law, you could be as respectable as somebody like the Pharisees. So Jesus is drawing this contrast between somebody who in the eyes of the people would have been hated, despised, disreputable, and somebody who in the eyes of the people would have been respectable. Look at verse 11. And the Pharisee standing by himself, separated ones, standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I thank you that I'm separated. I thank you that I'm holy. I'm thank, I thank you, Lord, that I have kept the law. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, at this point, Everybody would have been shaking their heads. Yes, that, that's how it works. The tax collector has not even a right to lift up his eyes to heaven. He's such a terrible individual. And the Pharisee could be thankful that he was not like other men. He wasn't an extortioner. He wasn't unjust. He wasn't an adulterer, at least physically. But then Jesus said this final line that would have exploded like a grenade in the midst of them. He says, I tell you, it was this man the Pharisee, no. It was this man, the tax collector, who went down to his house justified rather than the other. Why? Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The implication here is very simple. The only people who recognize their need for a savior are those who recognize there is something from which they need to be delivered. 
One of the reasons the Pharisees so despised Jesus and his claim to be the Savior is that they didn't see that they had anything that they needed to be saved from. Whereas the tax collector, he knew. One of the great theologians of the 20th century was a man by the name of Karl Barth. Uh, he was a Swiss theologian back in the 1930s, 40s, right up to the 60s. Uh, he was very influential. Um, some have said that he's the most influential uh, theologian of the 20th century, wrote a whole uh, doctrine of God, a great systematic theology um, called the Church Dogmatics. But somebody once asked Karl Barth um, what was the hardest sermon he'd ever preached and what was the easiest sermon that he'd ever preached. And he said that the hardest people he ever had to preach to were the Nazis uh, in the 1930s. They, they had a hard time hearing his message. And somebody asked him who was the easiest audience that he ever had to preach to, and he said it was a group of prisoners in prison. He said they were the easiest audience that he ever had to preach to. Why? He said because nobody had to convince them that they needed a savior. Well, if you think you're respectable, if you think you are fine, if you are, think you are righteous, if you think that you've dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, done everything that is necessary, checked all the boxes, then my friends, Jesus Christ is never going to be precious to you. But on the other hand, if you recognize that you've made a mess of your life, if you've actually taken the mask off and looked at yourself in the mirror for what you really are, if you've seen yourself in the words of Jean Valjean in the light of eternity, then Jesus Christ will indeed be precious to you. How did the Pharisees see themselves? Well, it's right here in the parable, not like other men, not an extortioner, not unjust, not an adulterer, not like the tax collectors but righteous, fasting twice a week and tithing all that they get. It's been a long time since we've been in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, but keep your finger here in Matthew chapter 23, if you will, and flip back to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to take a look at verse 21 and following. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. For you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now let me just ask you a question. You answer it in your own heart. Uh, thank goodness you're all muted, so I can't actually hear you answer this question. But how many of you have ever been angry with your brother? Or angry with your spouse? Or angry with your sister or your neighbor? Jesus said, you have heard you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you've been angry with one of these people, if you would wish them dead, 
you've already committed it as far as God is concerned. Or how about this one? You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I've said to you before, one of the most difficult things is to walk up King Street here in Charleston and pass Victoria's Secret. My goodness, Jesus said, if your eye offends, pluck it out. Well, you're willing to pluck out one eye, but you're willing to look with the other, aren't you? You see, God looks at our hearts. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Jesus' whole point is that God looks on the heart. The Pharisees, however, were not looking at their hearts. They regarded themselves as being different from other men, as being morally superior. And let's be honest, there are many of us who feel the same way. We always want to compare ourselves to somebody else, which is what the Pharisee was doing there in that parable. He was thankful that he was not like other men. He was thankful in particular that he was not like the tax collector. And we think to ourselves, now listen, I know I'm not perfect. I know I haven't lived a, a flawless life, but at least I'm not like others. I'm, I'm not like my neighbor over there who's done this, that, or the other thing. I, I've gone to all the right schools. I've, I've, I've kept all the rules. I'm, I'm respectable in the eyes of men, but God knows what's going on in your heart. Let me see a show of hands. I, I can't see you all, but I can see a number of you on the screen. How many of you have secrets that not even your spouse knows about? Ideas, thoughts that if they knew exactly what was going through your mind, they would be absolutely appalled. Anybody out there? Some people are not raising their hands. I'm not believing it. So next week we'll deal with the commandment that says, thou shalt not lie. We all have secrets. We all have things that we don't want other people to know. We all wear the mask. We all put on that picture of respectability. And we all, whether we want to admit it or not, like to think of ourselves as morally superior to somebody. That's how most human beings spent the greater part of their times, comparing themselves to others. And as long as there's somebody that we think is worse than we are, we somehow feel better about ourselves. We all like to think that we're from that place that Garrison Keillor talked about in Prairie Home Companion, Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. Let's be honest, that's the way we think of ourselves, don't we? Strong, good looking, and maybe not perfect, but certainly above average. Well, if that's what we think, Jesus has some severe words for us. That's how they perceive themselves. How did Jesus perceive them? Well, we've already seen. He perceived them as hypocrites. He said they did not practice what they preached. Or as some people would like to say, they did not walk the walk and talk the talk. That's what a hypocrite does. They, they do not practice what they preach. And let's be honest, if there's one thing that we do not like, it's hypocrisy. But it wasn't just that they were hypocrites. They were also indifferent. Jesus said they tied up heavy burdens. They made life more difficult for other individuals. And furthermore, he said they would not even lift a finger to help somebody else. They had all kinds of advice for others but it was advice that they didn't take for themselves. And when they gave people advice, they gave no help whatsoever. 
How many of you really appreciate people who have all the advice that they want to give you, but they're not willing to help? You ever had somebody like that? You ever met somebody like that? It's one of the things that I'm, I'm facing, quite frankly, right now, um, and wondering how in the world do we go back to church? The decision to stop worshiping corporately was not a difficult decision because, after all, it was made for us. The governor quarantined us. And so we were un unable to go back to worship. But of course, the bishop has now allowed churches to begin worshiping. And, and uh, the question is, how do we go back? How do we go back into the church? How do we maintain social distance? How do I keep the congregation safe? And of course, then there's the whole issue of masks, isn't there? Masks are no longer just a public health issue. They've become a political issue. Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Some people saying you should. Former vice president, some people saying you shouldn't. The president all kinds of things, all of these issues. And let me tell you something, you hear all kinds of advice. Everybody has an opinion about what you should do. One of the challenges for me right now is listening for the voice of the Good Shepherd in the midst of all of this. I have a member of the congregation, he's an older man. He served in the field artillery during Korea and um, he has healing, hearing impaired. And every now and then we'll go out to lunch, but I have to go to a restaurant where there's not a lot of background noise, because if there's a lot of background noise, he can't hear what I'm saying. Sometimes it's like that in the world. There are all kinds of opinions, all kinds of voices, everybody giving you advice, and you have a hard time hearing the voice of the Good Shepherd. Well, all of those voices, all of that background noise, that's exactly what Jesus was accusing the Pharisees of doing. Tying up heavy burdens, giving opinions, giving uh, all kinds of advice, but not doing anything to lift a finger to help. So Jesus perceived them as hypocrites, as indifferent to the plight of others, and finally, he perceived them as being proud. They do all of their deeds to be seen, what? By others. They love to make their phylacteries broad and the hem of their cloaks long so that others may see them. They love to be the center of attention. Now, the reason this was problematic is because Jesus, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to go back to Matthew 5 again, as I said, what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5 in that first part of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus paints for us a picture of the kingdom of God and what citizens of the kingdom of God look like. And the one thing is very clear, they do not look like the Pharisees. Citizens of God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, do not look like hypocrites. They are not indifferent, and they are not proud. So go back one more time to Matthew chapter 5, to the beginning of that chapter. And let's just refresh our memories as to what a citizen of the kingdom of God looks like. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who is an heir of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said, the poor in spirit. Now, it's really interesting because in another version of this, it simply says the poor. Blessed are the poor. We can be thankful that Matthew elaborated on what Jesus said when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not just uh, an economic condition that Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying that if you are 
poor, if, if you uh, do not have monetary um, assets, if you do not have possessions, you are going to be blessed by God. That's not necessarily the case. Being rich or poor are neither um, virtues nor are they sins. Being poor, being um, rich, these are economic states. What Jesus is talking about here is not something that has to do with a bank account. Jesus is talking about the status of your soul. He says, poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means somebody who has no confidence in themselves, who recognize that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves to offer to the Lord. How does the old hymn put it? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I claim. Jesus says, it's those who have no confidence in themselves who will ultimately inherit the kingdom. Now, if you think about it, that is the polar opposite of the way the world thinks. The world says it's not the poor in spirit, it's the assertive who will inherit. But Jesus said it's the poor in spirit. Well, if the Pharisees were anything, they were not poor in spirit. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn what? Well, in this particular instance, what Jesus is referring to is mourning for our sins. Every Sunday we confess our sins and we say these words and we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. It's interesting, isn't it? We don't merely acknowledge, we also bewail. It's one thing to acknowledge your sin, it's another thing to be sorry for it. I've said before, the child who gets his hand caught in the cookie jar, stealing cookies, may be sorry but he may be sorry that he got caught, not sorry that he did it. When Jesus talks about being mournful, blessed are the mourned, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the mournful, so they, they shall be comforted. What he's really referring to here is those who mourn for their sins, those who have no confidence in themselves, those who recognize their fallen state and are mournful. They're, they're not only acknowledged, they bewail their manifold sins, and indeed, their wickedness. As you've heard me say many times before, we have a tendency to think we're wicked because we sin, but actually it's just the opposite according to the scripture. We sin because we are wicked. And Jesus said a citizen of the kingdom is one who mourns that fact. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's not what the world teaches us. It's not the meek, it's the strong. The meek inherit the dirt, not the earth, but Jesus said it's not so in the kingdom of God. Now, meekness does not mean weakness. To be meek means that you place your confidence for justification in God. Moses, for example, was described as the meekest man who ever lived. Now, Moses, from a worldly standard, was not meek, if by meekness we mean weakness. He had to stand before the most powerful temporal ruler of his day, Pharaoh. But when we say that Moses was meek, what we mean is that Moses did not feel the need to defend himself. He trusted God to defend. Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to thirst for righteousness and to be satisfied? Well, to hunger and thirst for righteousness means to hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God. One that is based upon grace, not upon works. 
You hunger and thirst for a right relationship. That's what it means to be righteous. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Pharisees were not merciful, Jesus said. They tied up heavy burdens on others, and they were indifferent as to the plight of these individuals. Blessed are the pure in heart, pure, transparent, not wearing a mask. Blessed are the peacemakers. What does it mean to make peace? It means primarily to make peace with God. Now, we've seen a great deal of violence in our country over the course of the past week, a great deal of violence in our own city, unfortunately, the destruction of private property and so forth. And we say, well, what's the answer to all of this? Well, if you read my devotion or heard my devotion this morning, you know that the answer to this is the gospel. All of the destruction that we have seen over the course of the past week is not because of a corrupt police system. It's not even the result of corrupt protesters. The problem is the corruption of the human heart. We are not at peace with God, and because we do not have peace with God, we do not have peace with each other. And the world is in turmoil as a consequence. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That is to say, those who share the gospel, the gospel that tears down the dividing wall of hostility, that unites us to God, and because we are united with God, we recognize that whatever differences we may have, what we have in common is much greater. And finally, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If there's one thing that we do not like to think about, it's the prospect of being persecuted. But my friends, we need to understand very clearly, Jesus said persecution is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower. Jesus said, as the world hated me, so will it hate you. This is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. It means to be poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted. And it's the one thing that the Pharisees did not want to be. They did not want to be like a citizen of the kingdom of God. And as a consequence, Jesus called down judgment on them. Well, the Lord's verdict is a severe one. Just as he pronounced blessings on a citizen in the kingdom of God, so Jesus, going back now to Matthew chapter 23, calls down a series of woes or condemnations on those who live like the Pharisees. He calls down a series of woes or condemnations on those who wear the mask of respectability, but behind it are like whited sepulchers filled with dead men's bones and every kind of evil. Let's just go through these rather quickly. We only have about 15 minutes left today, but let's take a look at what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for in particular. We've already seen some of it in a general sense, their hypocrisy and so forth, but here he gets very specific. First of all, Jesus pronounces a woe on the Pharisees because they insisted upon making salvation hard. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean that they are making salvation hard? What does he mean that he is slamming the door of heaven in the faces of others? 
Well, a good way to illustrate this is to turn for a moment to Acts chapter 16, because what we have in Acts chapter 16 is a picture of the opposite. It's a picture of someone, namely the Apostle Paul, opening wide the door of salvation to others. So turn to Acts chapter 16. The story is a familiar one. Those of you who went with me on our pilgrimage to Greece and Turkey, you actually stood on the site where this event took place when we went to uh, Philippi. Paul and Silas, his traveling companion, had gone to the city of Philippi. Philippi was a great city of the ancient world. Paul, of course, was uh, intent on taking the gospel primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world in the hopes that if he could establish a Christian presence in the great cities of the world, it wouldn't be long before the gospel, like everything else, commerce, trade, so forth, would be coming and going. And Philippi was an important city. It was a city that had been originally settled by former soldiers of the Roman army. And the people of that city took great pride, great pride uh, in the fact that they were connected with the empire. Well, Paul and Silas, we're told one day, were on their way to the appointed place of prayer when they were accosted by a girl who was possessed of a demon. At least that's what the English translation said. Uh, those of you who've been with me, you've heard me teach on this before. Actually, what the Greek says is that she was possessed of the spirit of Pythona, the spirit of the snake or the serpent. Um, the ancient god Apollo, who had a temple nearby Philippi, um, was associated with the snake, and there are all kinds of stories associated with it. Some said that Apollo killed a great snake. Others say that he turned himself into a snake. It makes no difference. The point here is that this girl was possessed of a demon. The people thought she was possessed of the spirit of this um, pagan deity. And by this power, she was able to foretell the future. And because she was a slave girl, she made a great deal of money for her masters. While she was following Paul and Silas on this particular occasion, shouting out that these men were servants of the Most High God. It's very interesting, isn't it, that it's often the demons who were the first to recognize Jesus. When nobody else recognized him and his true identity, it's interesting, oftentimes the demons were the first. And on this particular occasion, it was the demon that was the first to recognize Paul and Silas for what they really were, servants of the Most High God. Well, that was all true. But let's be honest, if you're looking for a good character witness, a demon-possessed slave girl is probably not what you're hoping for. And the result is that Paul turns around, we're told, rebukes the demon, and it comes out of the girl, which is good news for her, but bad news for her owners. And they drag Paul and Silas before the magistrates on a trumped-up charge, the charge these men have come from afar, and they are advocating customs that are not lawful for Romans to practice. Now, that wasn't true, but that was the charge, and it was a serious charge. And the result is that Paul and Silas, we're told, are thrown into prison, locked in the stocks, and they are facing the prospect of execution. So that's the background to the story. Let's pick up the narrative in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. 
It was part of Roman law that if a jailer or a soldier lost his charges, he had to forfeit his own life. So this man has drawn his sword. He's prepared to kill himself. But Paul cries out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. As he was listening to these men who had the sword of Damocles, as it were, hanging over their heads, singing praise to God, in this bleakest of circumstances, caged birds singing praise to God, he must have thought that they were crazy until, until he recognized the power of their God in delivering them, in recognizing the fact that they didn't flee. They were so confident of their Lord's deliverance that they remained there. No wonder he was trembling with fear. He was trembling with fear and he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and it's right here that we have what I've always called the most direct question in all of Scripture. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? If you think about it, that is the critical question, isn't it? That is the question that every single person, whether they want to admit it or not, is looking to have answered. That's what every single person in this world is searching for. They are looking for salvation. Now, they may have different ideas as to what that means, but what they're really looking for is that peace which passes human understanding. They're looking for salvation. John Wesley, the great 18th century evangelist, said, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. We all want to know when this life comes to an end, what's going to happen to us in the life of the world to come. I want to know one thing, the way to salvation. That's what this man wanted to know. What must I do? What is required of me? What works must I accomplish in order to be saved? It's the critical question. Look at how Paul replies. It's the most direct question in all of scripture. And to his credit, Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He gives the most direct answer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now you'll notice here, Paul doesn't say, well, you need to join a church. Or you need to go ahead and get baptized. Or you need to go ahead and go through a confirmation class or a newcomer's class. Or you need to do, he doesn't say anything. There's no catalog of dues. The man asked a simple question, what must I do to be saved? The apostle answers, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, believing on Jesus Christ doesn't simply mean believing that he exists or even believing that he is the son of God. To believe on means to trust in him. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Listen, folks, that's a simple answer to the most significant question. What must you do? You must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees were not making salvation easy. They were making it hard. I pointed out last week that they had over 631 separate commandments that the people were expected to keep if they wanted to be in a right relationship with God, if they wanted to be saved. Jesus was saying they were making salvation hard. They were slamming the door in the face of others. It was hard for them. And because they couldn't get in, they didn't want anybody else to get in either. Woe to you, he says. You hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of God in people's faces. For you neither enter it yourselves nor allow those who would enter 
to go in. Second thing he says is this. He says, woe to you for corrupting the converts. Look at verse 15. You scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. In other words, you teach him, you train him to be as hypocritical as you are. Converting people to this works righteousness when had God has appointed the name by which all men must be saved. Woe to you, he says, for trivializing religion, for majoring in the minors, verses 16 and following. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by the oath. They were splitting hairs. We've already had an example of this in Matthew chapter 15. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. And one of the responsibilities of Jewish children when they became adults was to care for their parents. Parents care for their children when they are young. It's the responsibility of the children to care for their parents when they were old. That was the Jewish responsibility. And you were supposed to financially care for your parents. If your parents were left destitute for whatever reason, you had an obligation under the law to care for your parents. But there was a provision in the law known as Corbin, which stated, at least the Pharisees said this, this was their interpretation, that if you didn't want to give your money toward your parents for the upkeep of your parents, then what you could do is say the money that you would have given to your parents is dedicated to God, and that was called Corbin. But here's the trick. You didn't have to give that money to God right away. You could give it at the very end of your life when it wasn't worth much to you at that point. In the meantime, what happens? Well, your parents suffer. Which is one of the reasons why Jesus went on to condemn them for something else. For neglecting the important things. He said they were so concerned with tithing. I mean, listen, the Pharisees didn't just tithe money. They tithed everything. Even if they had a garden, they had a spice garden, they would tithe 10% of the spices. This is their way of saying, look at us, look at what we do. We give everything we have to God. We keep the law perfectly. But Jesus says, while they were concerned with spices and with money, they neglected the greater matters of justice, mercy, and kindness. We have a great illustration of this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the story, Jesus tells the story, a man was making his way up to Jerusalem, Jericho, on that road. Some of you have actually seen that road down there in the valley of the shadow of death, the Wadi Kelt. He's making his way on that road and he, fall among, he falls among bandits and they attack him and they beat him and they rob him of all of his possessions. And he's left by, for dead by the side of the road. And he would have perished had it not been for the fact that all of a sudden there comes somebody making his way along that road going up to Jerusalem and it's a priest. And the priest sees the man on the side of the road and what does he do? Does he go over and help him? No, he passes by on the other side. And then shortly thereafter, there comes another, a Levite. The Levites were like deacons. They assisted the priests in the worship at the temple. But when he sees the wounded man bleeding by the side of the road, what does he do? He goes by on the other side. Now understand, 
and Jesus' original audience would have understood this very well, there was good reason for the Pharisee to pass by, or rather for the priest to pass by on the other side. There was a good reason for the Levite to pass by on the other side of the road. Because if they had touched that wounded man, if they had touched this bleeding individual, they would have been ritually unclean. They would not have been permitted to go up and worship at the temple without making the necessary sacrifices. And so in their mind, they had no choice but to pass by on the other side of the road. They were so concerned with ritual purity that they neglected the greater matters of justice, mercy, and kindness. They were splitting hairs and neglecting the truly important things. Jesus goes on to condemn them for their self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. They're asking the question, what's in it for me? So often we do the same thing. He condemns them for the wickedness that is within. Regardless, he says, of what they look like on the outside, it's what's going on on the inside that is the real problem. He describes them as whited tombs, whitewashed sepulchers, polished and impressive on the inside, but on, or on the outside, but on the inside, they're filled with dead men's bones, he says, and every kind of evil. It's exactly what Paul was describing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, when he said, they have the form of religion, all the trappings, but they deny its true power. But then Jesus condemns them for one thing more. He condemns them, he says, for the murder of the prophets. For in spite of all their wickedness, God has been merciful. And over and over again, he has sent his messengers to the people, calling them back, calling them to pure hearts, calling them to humility, but they refused. Instead, they killed the prophets. And of course, the implication here is very clear. They were about to do it again. The greatest prophet of all was now standing in their midst, Jesus himself. And here they were at this very moment, plotting his downfall. Again, not just simply plotting to somehow discredit him in the eyes of the people. They were doing everything in their power to destroy him. And let's face it, folks, that's what we always do. When somebody comes to us with a message accusing us of something, even if in our hearts we know it's true, the first reaction is to rise up and defend ourselves. And if we can't defend ourselves, what do we do? We lash out at those who convict us. And that's exactly what happened here. Verse 37 says, Jesus wept for these people. He was angry with them. He was frustrated with them. He wanted them to take off their masks. But what is interesting is that he still loved them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The difference is profound, isn't it? This section of Matthew chapter 23 ends on a very, very somber note. It ends with Jesus turning his back and walking away. 
Now, there's no question about the fact that what Jesus says to the Pharisees here is severe. But I want you to notice two things about the severity. First of all, it is the truth. It is the truth. And it's not just a description, my friends, of the Pharisees. It's a description of us. Let's be honest. We wear a mask too. Let's be often. We often want to consider ourselves in, in correlation to other people. Oh, I'm not perfect, but I'm certainly better than him. We too make salvation difficult for other people. We sometimes make salvation difficult for ourselves. There is a sense in which we're really no better than the Pharisees. And so what he has to say to them, he says to us as well. It's a hard thing to hear. Reminds me of a conversation that took place between two women um, they had just come from church. They went to different churches. They were talking on the telephone. And the first woman was complaining about her pastor. She said, I think we're going to have to find another church. I know this sort of thing never happens in Charleston, but, but this kind of conversation does happen in other places. And this woman was complaining about the, the minister, and she just said, I, I just can't stand it. And the second woman said, well, what seems to be the problem? She says, well, every time he preaches, it's the same thing. He's always telling us that we're going to hell that if we don't straighten our lives out and turn to Christ, we're going to hell. And she said, I'll be honest with you, it's such a depressing message, I don't want to hear it anymore. She said, you seem to like your pastor, what does he preach on? And she said, the second woman, well, our pastor preaches that if we don't straighten our lives out and turn to Christ, we're going to hell. The woman said, well, that's the same thing mine preaches. Well, why do you like your pastor and I don't like my pastor? And the second woman said, I don't know, but when my pastor tells me that if I don't straighten my life out and turn to Christ, I'm going to hell, this much is clear. It sounds as though he's breaking his heart. See, there's a difference between speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love. Jesus spoke the truth to the Pharisees, but he spoke the truth in love. He spoke in the way that he did so that he might rouse them out of their slumber. He spoke in this way in the hopes that he might get through to them, that they might recognize that they needed to take off the mask. God knew their hearts anyway. He knew how blackened and soiled their hearts were. But he knew that his son had been sent into the world for the purpose of making them clean. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And Jesus turned and he walked away. And by the end of the week, those shouts of Hosanna in the highest are going to become shouts of crucify him crucify him. And the ones who were instigating the people in this, the most heinous crime in all of history, were the people described here in Matthew chapter 23. And my friends, every time we sin, every time we are guilty of what the Pharisees are guilty of, we crucify the Son of Man all over again. May God have mercy on us, and may God grant us the grace to see in this picture of the Pharisees a picture of ourselves. 
as I pointed out, and somebody's already asked me if I would address what's happening in our country, I did it in the devotion today. You can go ahead and listen to it, but I want you to understand the real problem that we face in America today, the real problem that we face in the world today is the corruption of the human heart. And there's only one remedy for that, and that is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that has the power to tear down these dividing walls of hostility. That is the only thing that has the capability of taking our stony hearts, our hard hearts, and transforming them into hearts of flesh. It's only the gospel that gives us the strength and the power and the freedom to take off the mask, to be seen for what we really are and all of our brokenness, all in our fallenness, and know that God loves us in spite of it and sent his son to die for us. That's the good news. It's the good news that perhaps through Jesus' death, some of the Pharisees would come to realize, at least one would. His name was Paul. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you today with thanks and praise for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you even for these words that he spoke to the Pharisees, difficult words, words that they found very hard to accept and words that we find hard to accept because truth be known, we are more like the Pharisees perhaps than we would like to admit. But we thank you that Jesus spoke the truth in love. And we thank you that there is a way that we can be cleansed. There is a way that we can be transformed. We can take off the mask and to begin to live freely in you. Grant us this, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.